Good morning. Is this microphone on or is everyone just hard of hearing? Testing, one, two, there we go. Thank you. Um, to let you know, too, I was told to stand on this X right here and not to move. So I'm going to stand right on the X and not move. Um, so I have a couple announcements. Oh, I just moved. I don't follow directions very well, sorry. Um, so how about this? Camera? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so we have a couple announcements for us this morning. The first is that we're updating our church database. Um, and if you can just check with ILA afterwards, she's going to have a little table set up here and just make sure we have the right email and contact information for you. And also giving statements afterwards, too. They'll be available, and you can contact Mr. Burr, Bill, on the box right here. Um, camera over there. And I guess it doesn't really matter for the camera because the people at home are not going to come get their giving statements. So, so you at home, you can always email Bill and ask for your giving statements that way as well. Um, so we're going to worship now. If you could please stand with me, and I'm going to pray. We're going to continue uh, looking at biblical stewardship this morning. And uh, I know many of you are blessed by Brother Mike uh, Mark's <laughs> uh, message uh, last Sunday, and uh, really excited uh, for today and for the next few Sundays together as Randy and Bill are going to come up. And, and our heart behind this is really as we chart a course forward into 2023 that we would be laying some foundations. We spent the first few Sundays in January looking at uh, various ways, uh, kind of vision and, and foundations, and now we're transitioning into biblical stewardship. Biblical stewardship, what does that mean, right? And, and, and how, how do we go about that? How do we pursue that? And this morning, to kick us off, I brought a, something from my office that I think I've only shared it once before, and it's my, it's my replica. I don't know if the camera can get that. This is my replica of Captain Jack Sparrow's compass from the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? And if you're familiar with, with the, uh, the series, this particular compass makes its appearance regularly in the various uh, movies, and, and there's something unique about this. Okay, this is not a compass that points to due north. In fact, this compass, if someone opens it, it spins around, spins around. And what it does, it points to the thing you want most in this world. It points to the thing that you want most in this world. So if I'm holding this, this is going to spin. And whatever it discerns that I want most in the world, it's going to point that way and chart me a course to that thing that I want most in the world. Question, if I were to hand this to you and it were to spin and point in a certain direction, would that thing that you're charting a course to, is that going to draw you closer to God and being a good and faithful biblical steward, or is that going to draw you away? Again, if this points you, points me, points you to the thing that I desire most on this planet at this specific time, and I were to follow the needle throughout Ojai and throughout wherever it would take me on this planet, is that destination drawing me closer to God and being a good and faithful biblical steward, manager of all the resources that he's blessed me with, or is it actually taking me away? Ponder that for just a moment. What is the thing that you desire most on this earth at this very moment, whether you're here, whether you're at home, whether you're listening to it? And is that helping or hindering your biblical stewardship? 
Because in the end, ultimately, the Bible says that uh, everything in our life is a heart issue. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. In the Bible, the heart is the control center. It's the control center. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you really want to try to discern what's going on in someone's life, you don't look at their behavior necessarily because their behavior, their language is a manifestation of their heart. I did youth ministry for, for many, many years and worked with teenagers from all kinds of backgrounds, all places all over the spectrum. And once you get past the outside behavior and stop reacting to that, and you start saying, Lord, show me their heart, things get more clear. Things get more clear. And so stewardship really is an issue of the heart, right? Sometimes you might, you might read a book on stewardship. You might go to a seminar on stewardship. You might listen to a podcast or even a sermon series. And sometimes if we're not careful, we equate stewardship first and foremost with the mechanics, budgeting, do's and don'ts, and, and really... The heart behind today's message is that it's a heart issue. If you really want to honor God in your biblical stewardship of all the resources that he's given you, the first place to look and first place to turn your attention to and care to is your heart. Is your heart. And so we're going to look at passage in Luke 12. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and in the midst of his teaching, someone sort of interrupts him and asks him, uh, makes a request. Jesus answers him, and then he gives a parable to, to uh, kind of reinforce his teaching. So in Luke 12, verses 13 to 21, it says this. Jesus is teaching a, a crowd. He says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, this is Jesus, he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're going to break up today's time in the word in, in really two sections, Jesus' response and then the parable. Uh, but let me, let me preface it by saying this. At the heart, the core of today's message, we're going to be looking at the heart issue of greed and covetousness. Now, here's, uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to hang in there. When we talk about greed and covetousness, it's one of those things that are very challenging because it's easier for us to see it in someone else than ourselves. And it's one, of those, it's one of those issues, I'll be honest with you, it's uncomfortable to admit. No one here would like to say, yeah, I'm greedy. Yeah, I'm covered. I, I, I'm covered. And, and I'm going to ask you to hang in there and work through that because as we work through sort of the biblical perspective of it, 
If you feel a bit of reproof, even conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's good. It's not a bad thing. Okay? This is not, and I need to say this, and I really want you to catch this. This is not, when we talk about greed and covetousness in light of biblical stewardship, this is not a beat you over the head, hammer you over the head, guilt and condemnation message. What this is, is a message of freedom. If God brings clarity to you in the area of greed and covetousness in ways that you had not really even seen yourself that way, and you today immediately confess, repent, receive forgiveness, you know what you just had? Freedom. You actually will be more free to be a good and faithful steward because now you've identified areas of bondage. Because you're going to see greed and covetousness, it's sneaky. It's sneaky. Many of us, when, you, when I say, oh, are you greedy or who's greedy, what comes to mind? A banker. Some, some man or woman in a business suit, scheming a way to defraud you, scam you, wants to hoard your money, right? We think of greedy people. There's this like, kind of like evil, wicked people. And oh, pff, not me. Not me. And so I really want to, again, challenge you, put off those stereotypes, because you're going to see greed and covetousness and materials, all of that. It's, it's how we're raised. It's part of the sin nature. It's especially in affluent America and affluent Ojai and Ventura and wherever you're from. We're all impacted. 24-7. 365. In fact, look what it says in Luke 12, 13-15. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's interesting because Jesus is teaching. And this guy is so wrapped up in getting his inheritance, he just blurts out. You see, he's so consumed with getting his share and getting his deal. He just in front of everyone says, hey, yo, Jesus, I know you're teaching. But by the way, I really want my share. He's fixated on this to the point where he, he, he blurts it out in, in front of everyone. Hey, can, tell him to give me my deal. That's what can happen when we fixate on getting our stuff. We can lose perspective. We can lose sight of where we are and who we're talking to, right? Look at his response. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We're going to camp here on verse 15. ESV again, it says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. In the NLT, it says, then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. There are two commands there, which should perk us up about the importance of this. Take care, be on guard, beware, guard against. There, is a, there are two commands to be continually, proactively engaged in this arena of greed and covetousness. So question, how aware, how guarded are you in this area of greed and covetousness, right? Because it's sneaky. It's sneaky. Many of us may not fall for, you know, oh, I want a big mansion and millions, blah, 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 you know, and that's how we equate being greedy is, these big things, when really, 
greed and covetousness are really small things in the heart that just add up. And then he says, it's very interesting, it was verse 15. It says, uh, Isaac, put up uh, the ESV. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. It's not just money. Okay, it's very important. It's not just money. He's talking about more than money here. Coveting, being greedy, not just limited to finances. Two commands. Beware and be on guard against greed and covetousness with money and everything else. Okay? What is greed? One definition is the thirst for having more, always having more, and more, and still more. It's a strong, insatiable desire to acquire more possessions for self or to possess more things than other people have, irrespective of need. Andy Stanley says this, Greed is not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And, and I was looking at this and I was thinking, okay, if it's not just, you know, these, these stereotypical characters, images we have of greedy business people or greedy, you know, what are some sneaky ways, what are some ways that, that greed and covetousness can sneak into my life, your life, even as a believer or even into the church? One of the things I came across, Andy Stanley, again, he calls it consumption assumption. Is what he says. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. You see, you can be poor and greedy, or you can be rich and greedy. Greed has nothing to do with an amount of money. It has everything to do with an assumption about money. So your dollars become things. They become a house. They become things in your house. They become a car. You just consume, consume, consume. Or maybe you do the opposite. Some of you don't spend all of your extra money. You hoard yours. Of course, we don't call it hoarding. We call it saving. But the same assumption that drives some people to spend, spend, spend is the same assumption that drives some people, maybe you, to save, save, save. Because who are you saving it for? For you. After all, it's yours. Different habits, same assumption. The consumption assumption. And most of us are guilty. It's ingrained. I work hard. It's my paycheck. I get to do with it what I want, right? That's deeply ingrained. I work. I get it. My paycheck has my name on it. I cash it. I put it into my checking or saving account. It's mine to do with what I want. Do you, do you see like the foundational assumption that underlies all of that? That right there is why many struggle with biblical stewardship. Because we assume it's, fill in the blank, mine. We assume it's to do with what I Right then and there, somebody here may have already gone clink, clink, clink. My gosh, that's why I struggle with biblical stewardship. Right? You've heard before, you know, sometimes people struggle with, you know, tithing is 10%, right? You know that we've discussed that before. And you go, oh, man, he wants 10%. Well, you flip that and he says, oh, my gosh, he lets me keep 90. 
somebody's going to get that on their way home. We're like, I get it. I struggle with him wanting 10. He lets me keep 90 because it's all his. How many of you, if you got, you know, someone came up to you and said, hey, keep 90%. Just give me 10. How many of you would celebrate? Keep 90. Right? Hey, I got $100 here. You keep 90, just give me 10. How many of you would be walking away celebrating that 90? I got that 90. Sweet. Consumption assumption. Very slick. Very, very sneaky way to get it even into the church. And then stewardship becomes conflict. Because now it's mine and God wants it. Versus it's all his and I'm just trying to figure out what he wants me to do with his and be blessed with what he lets me keep. Radical shift. If some of you get that, your biblical stewardship go off the charts. It'll be, it'll be freeing, liberation, right? Second sneaky way that, that greed and covetousness can come in, something I came across called lifestyle inflation. Now, you're very familiar with some of you who follow the economics, the CPI report, the inflation going up, yada, yada, yada. There's a thing called lifestyle inflation. This is what it says. As individuals earn more, their spending also increases. As they buy more often and more expensive items, they get used to this new lifestyle and their ability to live within their means is diminished even as their wealth increases. We're doing it to ourselves. It's lifestyle inflation. This has nothing to do with what's happening in the economy. We need to keep up with the Jones. We need bigger, badder, better. And so we're the ones creating this sense of not enough, not enough, because as our, as our salary or whatever goes up, we just fill it. I can't remember, some of you may have read that statistic came out just a few weeks ago. A very high percentage of people in the United States making over $100,000 live paycheck to paycheck. Very high percentage of people in the United States making over six figures live paycheck to paycheck. Now, some of you are like, how is that even possible? If I had six figures, careful. (laughs) Some of you get six figures, there's going to be a different car right parked right there. And that extra monthly income that got you over six figures is going to Ford. That's what happens. It's called lifestyle inflation. Because what? Now we can afford it. Right? The classic justification. Now we can afford it. What's the heart condition behind that? What's the heart condition? Third kind of sneaky way that... uh, has come in, and this is, you know, for those of us my age and older, still impacts us, but not to the same degree as the millennials. It's social media. Social media and advertising and everything. They did a study on the impact of social media on American spending. 90% of millennials say that social media creates a tendency to compare wealth and status to their peers. 90% of millennials Just by being on social media, it creates this tendency to compare themselves, wealth and status, with the peers, their peer group that they see online, right? 60% of millennials feel inadequate because of something they see on social media. 
the clothes, the vacations, the perfect this, the latest that, 60% of millennials start to feel a sense of inadequacy. What's the result? 57% say that they are parted with money they hadn't planned to spend. So you spend time on social media, start comparing yourself, start to feel inadequate. Real easy to buy something online because that's what all the cool people... Isn't it amazing? Again, this goes back to youth ministry. Isn't it amazing? We used to like just think that peer pressure was just for junior high, middle school, and high school, right? Oh, watch out for peer pressure. Watch out for peer pressure. How many of you no longer in high school still feel peer pressure to measure up, to be part of the cool crowd, right? It's all there. It's amazing. Social media has brought peer pressure to the world of adults. And what's happening? We start spending. Lifestyle inflation. Consumption assumption. All being driven by what? The world's value system. Some of us this morning, to advance, to be set free, to be a very good biblical steward, you're going to need to sit down and you're going to say, man, how are these three things impacting me? Have I bought into the consumption assumption? Have I bought into this lifestyle inflation? Have I allowed social media and the things that I'm seeing, reading, listening to impact my self-worth, my sense of adequacy, right? And the crazy thing is it doesn't satisfy. You can buy all you want. Look what Ecclesiastes 5.10 says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Right? And when I read that, I thought of years and years ago, like 30 years ago, went on a mission trip to the Philippines. And as part of this mission trip, we would go to a southern island. And during the day, we would go out to these local villages. And Philippines, and national sport is basketball. Right? And so every village had a basketball court. And so we went out one day, and me and my buddies, uh, it was kind of unplanned, but they had a basketball court, full, full, on ba- full court basketball in the middle of the jungle. It's crazy, right? It's awesome. And so we decided to challenge the local team, players, whoever in the village to basketball, because we play basketball. So, so we're running out there. If you know anything about the Philippines, it's like 90-plus humidity and 90-plus temperature, and we're in the middle of the jungle playing basketball. And, of course, we get thirsty, and, you know, there's concern about water, yada, yada. So what, do we, what, do we, what are we blessed to drink to quench our thirst? Coke. Bottles and as much Coca-Cola as we want. So we're playing basketball in 90-plus humidity, 90-plus temperatures, sweating, having a great time drinking Coke to try to satisfy our thirst. I don't think I felt so sick it doesn't work. You would think, right? It's liquid. Drink it. It'll quench your thirst. It's just brown water. Oh, no. It made it worse. And that's kind of what this greed and covetousness, we look at it like, oh, man, yeah, just come on, more. Little, and no, it makes it worse. It makes it worse. Eric Fromm says, greed is a bottomless pit. 
which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy the need without ever reaching satisfaction. Greed can be, can be really the attempt to fill a void. Self-worth, inadequacy, status, whatever it's trying to fill, and it, it never works. Why? Because once you arrive somewhere, you poke your head up, and there's someone bigger and better and better than you. Makes more than you, still has a better car, still has a bigger house, still has a whatever, still dresses nicer than you. And just when you think you arrived, you feel just as inadequate again. You make your first million, now you're going to make two million. You make two million, now you're going to make five. Because you're trying to fill a void that only God can fill. That only God can fill. I like this quote by Andrew Carnegie. He says, millionaires who laugh, said Andrew, Andrew Carnegie, are rare. You may have all the money in the world and yet be a lonely, sorrowing man. Nadine and I, we, we have friends all over the financial spectrum. Down in San Diego, we have friends who, quite honestly, they're believers and, and you know, God has blessed them in their businesses and they love the Lord dearly and, and they give generously and, and it's all good. We also have friends who, um, in the secular world, have made a lot of money, but they're miserable. Their families are destroyed. They're lonely. There's no relationship. They pursued money, money, money to the neglect of their kids, neglect of their marriage. And now all these years later, they're empty. They're alone. But they drive a really nice car. And I was like, what does it matter? I've seen both ends of the spectrum, right? It's a question of the heart. There are consequences. First Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love, everyone say love, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, right? Again, in this area of greed and covetousness, not only do we have to be honest, we also have to be humble. Which means, you might read a, a, a Passage like that and go, not me. I win Powerball, I get 500 mil, not going to affect me. I'll be real honest. I win 500 mil, it's going to affect me, and I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to struggle with that. Right? There's an element of honesty when it comes to greed and also humility. That, you know what? There is a devil. A sneaky devil that's prowling, that wants to destroy you, your family, and sometimes it's through prosperity and, and a financial windfall. You've all heard the stories of lottery winners who their lives were destroyed, right? They couldn't handle it. So we have to be humble. Colossians 3.5, it's interesting. Colossians 3.5 equates greed with idolatry. Think about that for a second. Oh, greed, uh, just wanting more. No, what it, what, when, when you are so fixated on the accumulation of more and more and more, you know what that means? It becomes an idol. You become consumed with that thing rather than God being the center of your life. Now riches and wealth becomes an idol. That's a powerful word picture, right? It's a powerful word picture. And then greed can impact our giving, Many of you are familiar with this passage in Luke 21. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. 
Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they had given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Very familiar with the widow's might. They say those two small coins were the smallest denomination, equal to penny. Right? So Jesus, he's just watching. He's watching people give their offerings. And he says, you know what? She's given more than all these rich people. Because the difference between what the widow gave and what the rich people gave, great word, was proportion. What she gave was true sacrifice in proportion. What the others gave was just extra out of their abundance. Wasn't the same proportion, right? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. I came across this article titled, Does Being Wealthy Make You Greedy? And it's really interesting how it backs up the widow's might. Okay, so what they did, and, and this isn't church giving, this is just charitable giving as a whole. They compared three levels of annual income, 50000 to 99000 100000 to 199000 and then 200000 up. Here's what they found. A 2012 survey from the Chronicle of Philanthropy found that households who earned the least gave nearly 50% more. Donating 6% of their income compared to 4.2% of those making 100000 and above. Even in the secular world, there's a whole, it's, a, it's a heart issue. Right? So this, this idea that, man, if I just make more, I'm going to give more to the well. Will you? Really? Because statistically, it really doesn't work that way. Isn't that interesting? Because it's a heart issue and it's so... Subtle. And then, if this comes into our heart, it can really impact what we consider to even be the meaning of life. Like what he says in, again, verse 15. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Again, that verse right now, I'm just going to say, it, it sounds real simple, but not the way we're raised in this country. There are two core values that many of us are raised with that you may not even be aware of, that you, you may have embraced, and you work really hard, and you're not sure why you're working really hard, but you really do because you're trying to achieve, and there's two core principles, personal peace and affluence. Two foundational core values that drive a lot of the, the desire for more and more and more in the American culture. We just want personal peace, and we just want affluence. Right? That's what life's about. Life's about getting to a certain place, income level, maybe title, possession-wise, and you get to this certain place, and you arrived, and arrived is defined as personal peace and affluence. We don't have to worry about da-da-da-da-da anymore. We don't have to be stressed about anymore. And we're working really, really hard for personal peace and affluence. Right? Now, doesn't mean we don't work for the basic necessities. We covered that before, right? What we're really talking about is when you cross the line to make it an idol, to make it the thing that you're consumed with. Again, Andy Stanley says this, money is not the meaning, the meaning of life. Money is not the meaning. It is a means. 
It is a tool for doing something meaningful. It has the potential to make your life meaningful. I love that. Money is not the meaning. It's the means to make your life meaningful. Amen? It's just the means. You know, years ago, you know, Bill's very gifted in the area of this, finance. And, and you know, one of the things that, that he said to me years and years ago that just struck me is like, money is just a tool. Money is just, it's just a thing. That's why it says the love of money. We're the one that messed it up. Money is just a tool to be used for God's kingdom. I know many people who, again, God has blessed their business, yada, yada, yada. But the true joy and the meaning in their life is giving it away and watching it get multiplied around the globe for God's kingdom. That's what lights their fire. Not accumulating and hoarding more for self. It's make it, be a good steward, give it away, and let God's kingdom be expanded and glorified. Amen? That's when, it, that's when money becomes meaningful as a tool. It is not the meaning, though. It's just the means. Okay? So he shares this, and then Jesus tells a parable. Verse 16 to 21, he says this. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, again, why is this simple parable challenging? Because many of us would read about this guy and go, American dream achieved. Produced plentifully. He worked hard. He was effective. He got the system down. The business plan worked, right? Produced plentifully, abundantly. Business plan, profit, boom, baby. American dream right there. That's, that's the challenge. In fact, many are like, well, that's a real, I'd like to have that problem. I'd like to have his problem, having too much, right? And so the challenge of this is that we're raised to celebrate this. We're raised to celebrate this and go, duh. That's why I got all that I did in high school. That's why I went to UCLA. That's why I was to get like this guy. Wasn't that the American dream? What's the problem, right? And this, again, is something where you, you, in your own journey, your own walk, need to sit down and be willing to say, have I bought into that? Have I bought into that? Because if you were to read that carefully, and I had to do this a few times, in those first, first uh, 16 to 20, or 16 to 19, he says the word I six times. I, 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 right? And I love, I love the message because the message, we'll read it, and it says, Then he told them this story. The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. 
He talked to himself. What can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods, and I'll say to myself, and this is why I love the message. He goes to third person. Self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. Isn't that the American dream? Self, go on that cruise. Go do that thing. Self. I love, you know, I, 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 and then the message, she just, third person, self. Because that's the issue here. It's not, the problem isn't that he succeeded in his business. The problem is it's about him and self. In fact, he outs himself. Self. You got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. I'm not sure how that squares with the Great Commission. I, I, I think the Great Commission doesn't end. I think biblical stewardship never ends. And yet, see, we, we buy into this model of work hard, 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 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, build it up, build it up, and now retire and go into cruise control. And if we're not careful, we go into cruise control spiritually. And we bring everything we've been talking about, the consumption assumption, the lifestyle inflation, the, all the impact of social media, we bring it all into our spiritual world, and we wonder why we're still in bondage. We wonder why we're still struggling with biblical stewardship. Because for many of us, we bought into this. We bought into this. J.R. Miller says this, Few people think of the danger of getting rich. Most think that they become great just in proportion as they gather wealth. Yet there was never a more fatal error. A man is really measured by what he is, not by what he has. We may find a shriveled soul in the midst of a great fortune and a noble soul in the barest poverty. A man's real life is what would be left of him if everything he has were stripped off. His real worth is his character. As it happens, as it appears in God's sight, we will make a great mistake if our goal in life is simply to gather more worldly trinkets than our neighbor. Right? Some of you shared before, in the 80s, 90s, that bumper sticker, he who has the most toys wins, right? Accumulation of stuff. Trinkets, 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 trinkets. Why? Because if we're honest, it's about self and my status and my prestige and my self-worth all trying to fill a void of inadequacy, all trying to either measure up or outdo our peers. Yeah, it's really slick. It's really, it's just something, again, as I pondered this, and, and again, not been real comfortable for me. Challenging. Challenging. You know? Think about times in, in, in our own family where we had to, Make me, perhaps many of you, rent a storage unit because we had too much stuff to keep at our house. Anyone willing to admit that with me? You're like, I mean, that is a statement of our culture that, that people are, have a very good business model. Just pay me monthly and I'll keep your extra stuff under lock and key. There's a statement about our culture in that. 
rather than getting rid of the extra stuff and maybe moving it on and blessing others and do it, we pay somebody to watch our stuff. And I'll be point blank honest with you. There were times when I went months without going to look at the stuff that was so securely taken care of. Out of sight, out of mind, write the check. Yeah, probably not the best stewardship in that season of life, but it was my stuff. My stuff, right? And I get it. I get it, you know. Christine, God bless you. She's a personal organizer, helps people get rid of stuff. How many of you have tried to sort at times? And you get, you're going through it. Like, oh, oh, Shiloh made this when she was in first grade. We can't give this away. She has no clue what it is. She doesn't even know, remember it. How many of you have struggled? Like, you see stuff, you know we got to clear, and then you start clearing, and suddenly the emotional attachment comes, you can't give it away, right? You haven't seen it in six months. You... But I might wear it one day. I might need that tool one day. That, that, that one tool that I went out and bought for that one project. <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> that I've got to keep. Because <laughs> you never know. You just never know. And the problem with that, Wayne, is that 10 years down the road, you need it. And you go, where is that? I knew I would need it. And it validates holding on to that thing. Right? Thank you, Paul. See? Right? <laughs> it's, it's real. At varying levels. Right? Because it's a heart. There's not a one of us here or in person that are online that wouldn't say we're this stuff. I love the Veggie Tales years ago, right? Veggie Tales, they call it Stuff Mart. Right? Remember that one? Some of you like Veggie Tales Stuff Mart. And we go to Stuff Mart to just buy more stuff. Right, and they come out with this like train of like twenty carts, right? And then they, they go to this treehouse. They live in this treehouse, and they have to get all the twenty carts of stuff into the treehouse. You know what happened to the treehouse? It goes bonk. <laughs> I'm like, because they went to Stuff Mart to buy more stuff, right? It's just real, and we, we just have to be willing to be honest and look at it, be transparent, right? And then. One of the impacts of, of when we allow it in, uh, they have discovered in, in an article, or article called The More You Love Money, The Less It Loves You Back, they found out this. People who love money, they're very much susceptible to instant gratification, what they call, the author calls, short-termism. So the more I allow money to become a, kind of like my idol and consumed by it, I start to live more and more in the world of instant, short-term gratification. It's very interesting that they found. So in this parable, then, he switches from the man's perspective to God's view. In in verse 20, he says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is an issue of perspective, what really matters here. 
God shows up and says, hey, let me tell you what really matters here, right? And in fact, that word fool, it's very interesting. It's defined as having a lack of sense, not reflecting, lacking good judgment, unmindful of consequences, okay? Gary Enrig says this, in God's eyes, he is a fool to be pitied. The term fool in biblical language is not a description of mental ability, but of spiritual discernment. In the Old Testament language of Psalms and Proverbs, a fool is an individual who makes choices as if God doesn't exist and who lives as if God hasn't spoken. So you think about that in relationship to the man's response to having too much. God isn't even in the equation. God isn't even in the equation. And so for some of us, right, we make our plans, we have visions of financial gain, whatever it might be. The question for you and for me is, where is God in that? Where is God in that? Remember James says, hey, you know what, you make all these plans, da-da-da-da-da-da, what you should say if the Lord wills. The problem in that passage in James was that they were making all these business plans without God in the picture. So for some of us, maybe what you need to do is you go home, maybe get your checkbook symbolically, or your debit card, your credit card, you lay it all out, and you say, Lord, it's all yours. Just kind of symbolically say, Lord, I want to be a good steward. And if these tokens represent all that you've blessed me with financially, I'm laying them out on the table, symbolically surrendering them to you. And just sit there long enough for that transfer of ownership to kind of happen at the heart level. And you might struggle a bit. You really might. Okay, and if you do, hang in there. Hang in there. It's okay. Okay? He says, this night your soul is required of you. The, the, the word picture when he says is required of you, it's like a loan. It's a commercial loan. It says, you know what? The loan is due. I'm demanding the loan. I'm calling it in right now. That's the picture. Okay? Ecclesiastes 2. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth. For I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. See the perspective? Suddenly, uh, in Ecclesiastes, like, whoa, what? I don't take it with me. I worked hard all my life, and they might just blow it. Is that, what it, is that what it was about, right? In the NLT in Luke, it says, But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. In the message, just then God showed up and said, Fool, tonight you die, and your barn full of goods. Who gets it? That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Again, who's on the throne? Who's in control of it all? Who owns it all? Right? Warren Wiersbe. Money does not necessarily solve problems. It created new problems for this farmer. 
It is not a sin to be wealthy, but it is a sin to make wealth your God. The rich are prone to be covetous, and the poor are prone to worry. Both are sins. When we substitute things for life, we stop living by faith and trusting God. All of nature trusts God to meet their needs, and so should we. Worry only tears us down. The key to a worry-free life is a heart fixed wholly on God. I love that because at the root, biblical stewardship at the heart level requires faith. Trust. If I, if I am a good steward, Father, I trust you to provide for my needs. Uncharted territory for some here. To let it go, to genuinely write the check and do whatever God wants you to do. And you know what? At that moment of your nervousness, what are you being challenged with? Faith and trust. Letting him be in control. Letting him provide. Let him come through. Right? It's an issue of faith. Luke 12. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Actually, that's Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So the question is, where's your treasure? Because if I find your treasure, I'll find your heart. They're linked. What are you treasuring most on this earth? Because your heart's going to be right there with it. Is a compass pointing to God and biblical stewardship or to self, right? One of the most tragic stories in the entire New Testament is that of the rich young ruler. Remember him who asked Jesus, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing him, he gives a list of commands. And he says, "Ah, yeah, I've kept all those commands, right? What else? And Jesus says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. That is one of the most gut-wrenching, tragic stories. This young, rich person has an opportunity to ask Jesus himself, not listen to a podcast, not read it in a book, not go online to a website. He has a chance to ask Jesus himself how to get eternal life. And Jesus himself, knowing that it was a heart issue, tells him, hey, you got to give me everything, including everything in your heart. I don't care about your religious duties and your religious actions. I want you, and that means... I want you to give me what you're holding on to the most, which is your money. I want you. And again, one of the most tragic verses is verse 23. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. He walked away. That's the power of greed. That's the stranglehold it can have on us. Think about that for a second. Think about how powerful greed is in that moment. He asks Jesus himself how to live eternally. Jesus tells him, and he walks away because money is more important than eternity in heaven. That should be a flag to all of us about the grip that greed and covetousness can have on us. 
and how tightly we're going to hold on to it. And then we talk about biblical stewardship, and we're fighting, and we're fighting, and we're fighting. We're like, why are you fighting so much? This is good for you. Right? It's amazing. He was so ensnared with greed and his wealth, he forgot what he asked Jesus. (laughs) How do I live forever with you in heaven? The things on this planet had so ensnared him that he literally walked away from Jesus himself. It's tragic. It's tragic, right? Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? So for you here, for you at home, for you listening later, I just want to encourage you, challenge you. Nothing is more important than eternity in heaven through faith in Jesus. I don't care how many millions and billions and cars and homes and neighborhood, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I have had the privilege, and I call it a privilege because I really do mean that. I have had the privilege to be beside many people in their final breath on this planet. And I got to tell you, what a profound, profound experience it is when they know Jesus. And their 401k and where they used to live and what they used to drive And what they used to own doesn't even matter in that moment. All that matters is that they're about to be in the presence of Jesus. It's all that matters. And so for you here, you've got to ask yourself, what really matters? What really matters? I'll tell you, it's Jesus. That's what really matters. And so it might take a little bit of just honesty and transparency Maybe you have, like many of us, bought into the idea that wealth as your God, as your idol, is your source of security, your source of validation, your source of peace, your source of security. And the faith step is to cast it all into Jesus. Just let it go and look to Jesus alone. Okay? And for the church... This morning, maybe you're a believer, but maybe God has been speaking to you about this area. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Maybe you're a believer and you've been in church for a while, but over time you kind of got caught up back into the world's value system and you're starting to get caught up in keeping up with the Joneses and lifestyle inflation and you're trying to fill these needs. You still come to church. You still go to Bible study. You still read the Bible. You still pray. But you're, now you're kind of trying to fill these voids and you're finding it's not working. It's like cracked cisterns. It just leaks. And maybe God's just challenging a little bit today to say, hey, you know what? You got to come back. You got to do it. We, we need to have a a debrief here. 
We need to have a powwow about your heart regarding Stuff Mart, right? And if he's doing that, have the powwow. Sit down with Father. Like I said, bring the symbols of your wealth and status and put it on the table and have a chat. Matthew 6, 24 in the Amplified. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, defined as money, possessions, fame, status, or whatever is valued more than the Lord. You can't do it. And some of you may be stuck spiritually. You're stuck. You're dry. You're stifled. Whatever it might be. Because you're trying to serve two masters. And maybe today the Lord's like, you got to stop. You got to make a choice. You can't do both anymore. You're burning out trying to do both. Right? So maybe it's time to take down the idols. And that begins with confession. Confession. Repentance. And then finally, I just want to close with this and... and it was interesting, a lot of this has been, you know, like, okay, Lord, where am I, where, how does this apply, what, what should I do in my own life? And then, towards the end of the week, I started, wait, but how does this apply to the church? If greed has come into the church, could this be affecting the church and its witness and power in the community, even in Ojai, right? And I thought specifically of the event that comes up once a month, it's in the bulletin, the Prayer for Revival, Right, that hosted by Pastor Gavin in First Baptist. Prayer for revival at someone's home. Encourage you to go. We all want revival. How many of you here would love to see revival, spirit move in the Ojai Valley? Right, just powerful movement of God. We would love to see that. And I was thinking, and I'm like, wait, is this issue, this heart issue of greed, is it, could that be impacting revival in the Ojai Valley? And and, I, and I, it was interesting because it just kind of came to my mind. And then I came across this this uh, article from the Christian History Institute. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a man named John Wesley, lived in the 18th century. He's the founder of the Methodist Church. Okay? And John Wesley wrote a lot, very good uh, theology on biblical stewardship. And, and it's interesting because uh, this article speaks about John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, at one point in his life, stepping out and doing an honest assessment of the Methodist Church. And this is what it says, okay? Most of us know that John Wesley was used, was used by God to revive 18th century England and to start the Methodist Church. We know him as a great preacher and a great organizer. We, rem- we remember him for his contribution to the church's thinking on sanctification. In later life, Wesley grew discouraged with Methodism. Although he had seen the mo- movement grow from two brothers to a society of almost a million people, He felt that it had lost much of its spiritual power. He believed the Methodists no longer hungered and thirsted for righteousness as they once had. He observed that they were not as eager to attend the 5 a.m. preaching services as in the past. He feared his followers had lost much of their love for their neighbors, for he saw that they were not as ready as they had been to visit the sick and needy. He was convinced that this decline in the way they loved the Lord and their neighbors had grieved God's Holy Spirit and had driven him from their midst. He feared his lifetime of labor had been in vain. Besides thinking that God had abandoned the Methodists, 
Wesley thought he knew the cause of this desertion. A particular sin had caused them to lose their first love and had separated them from God. What was the sin that convinced him that God had abandoned them and which he thought was hindering revival? Wesley noted that in the old days of Methodism, the people were poor. But he observed in the 20, 30, or 40 years since they joined the society, many Methodists had become 20, 30, or even 100 times richer than they were at first. With this increase in wealth had come a decrease in godliness. It seemed to him the more money the Methodists had, the less they loved the Lord. That's the founder. Being honest in his assessment of the spiritual condition and this, the reason behind the lack of spiritual power. And I thought of that in light of this desire to have revival here in the Ohio Valley, which I'm 100% would love to see, 100% would encourage you to participate in prayer. But then I'm stopped by this article, and I'm like, wait, maybe, maybe revival will come when the church repents. Maybe, like the Methodists, we don't love the Lord or others as much as we ought to or used to because we're comfortable. And we've allowed comfort and materialism and greed and all this to kind of, you know, we still want to pray for it, but it's not as high a priority because what's really a priority is personal peace and affluence. Are we really hungry? What he's saying is like, they lost their hunger. They lost just the rawness of wanting the people to be saved. And what was the root of it? Greed, comfort, materialism, right? And it's just one of those things where it's, it's one of those ouch moments. And yet, there's also freedom in it. And I'm thinking maybe, maybe the church needs to spend time in confession and repentance as we seek the Lord for revival. Maybe it needs to begin with us. Getting rid of the idols of greed and materialism. Get rid of our idols and then ask the Lord to move in this community. Maybe we're the hindrance. I'm just sharing. Right? And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. Finally, Daryl Box says this. The danger of the pursuit of possessions is that it can make one insensitive to people. Greed can create a distortion about what life is because the definition of life is not found in objects, but relationships, especially to God and his will. To define life in terms of things is the ultimate reversal of the creature serving the creation and ignoring the creator. Real life is tied to God, his offer of forgiveness of sins, his values, and his reward. That's what really matters. Let's pray. Good morning. morning. Is this microphone on or is everyone just hard of hearing? Testing, one, two, there we go. Thank you. Um, To let you know, too, I was told to stand on this X right here and not to move. So I'm going to stand right on the X and not move. Um, So I have a couple announcements. (laughs) Oh, I just moved. I don't follow directions very well, sorry. Um, (laughs) So... How about this? <laughs> Camera? No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
Um, so we have a couple announcements for us this morning. The first is that we're updating our church database. Um, and if you can just check with ILA afterwards, she's going to have a little table set up here and just make sure we have the right email and contact information for you. And also giving statements afterwards, too. They'll be available, and you can contact Mr. Burr, Bill, on the box right here. Um, camera over there. And I guess it doesn't really matter for the camera because the people at home are not going to come get their giving statements. So, so you at home, you can always email Bill and ask for your giving statements that way as well. Um, so we're going to worship now. If you could please stand with me, and I'm going to pray.